Sup, Charisse? Charisse is wearing this blanket. Is that fashion? Um, the blanket I think might have been designed by Jerry, who wait is this works a, here at FMBG. It's an FM Below Ground communal blanket. So. You didn't bring that from home. No, it oh. was from a. I was really cold when I arrived here because this mall is really cold. All malls in Hong Kong are freezing, especially in the summer. Anyway, he pulls it out of that cupboard, so now you know if you ever want to take a nap here. Anyway, I'm still cold, so it's now draped around me like a poncho. I'm wearing a jacket too. So. If I if I had it belted, it would be fashion. Yeah, it's fashion. Fashion. <laughs> F A S H U N. Yes, fashion. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making Up is produced by Megan, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners. But really, we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. Making Up is supported by our generous Patreon members. To help us keep going, consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash makin for access to our Discord, exclusive newsletters, and more. Let's get into it. What's good? In more Sharice updates, I had a wisdom tooth pulled. Do I sound different? No, you sound the same. Okay, but wasn't cool. I smart to... You were smart. I, I didn't like, think of it. like, yo, man, you're not going to be able to record the next day. I really didn't think of it. I didn't think it was like... Your mouth was probably all swollen. Yeah, it was like a half chipmunk because it was just the so right side eat? of my mouth. Soup, Congee. Chinese soup, porridge, Chinese porridge, Chinese boiled porridge. down rice. Yum. It's, it's what everyone who's Chinese eats when they feel sick. It's like the default feeling ill food. Yeah. What's up with you? You got a game tonight. You have a footy game. No, man, this is hella random. I got I got called into as a ringer for this team in a cup final. Seriously? I've only ever played like, with this these guys Like, this is not once. your normal team. No, it's like an over... Are you getting paid? Yo, I'm about to date myself. It's like an over 35 team. Wow. Yo, that's kind of crazy. I used to... You're I used on to remember, the senior citizen dude, team Dude, I now. used to remember my dad used to play it's this shit. I was like, oh man, team. he's so old. And oh, then here I am. man, Eugene. It's kind of funny because, yeah, I've played once with this team, but I didn't even play keeper. Anyways. um, Yeah, no, actually it's been a crazy five weeks of football. I've played what will be 15 games in five weeks. Insane. <laughs> Plus training. Hey, man, I don't feel old. I wasn't challenging you. How dare I you? I How I, dare I you make not, me feel bad about being in, old? Oh my, oh my God. All Anyways, right. yeah, I don't really care. Okay, guys. Moving you just on. Just ruin the mood. Moving on. You want to start first or me? I can start first. Okay. So today's subject on my end actually comes from three different articles that I would have read anyway. Honestly, whether or not we were talking about, but I'm glad that we are. And it started because I just came across one article and it linked to the other and then the other. And they're all related. And the subject is social media managers. The people whose job it is to manage the social media presence of brands and companies. I like where this is going. Cool. So the first I need piece, to hire one. 
You you do. We had this discussion I actually just this past week. Yeah. Which is maybe why I clicked on the story in the first place, I think, potentially, yeah. because we've been talking about it and yeah. it was like subconsciously in my mind. We were talking about how, well, we've had this conversation many times that Eugene, myself, and the other regular making people, Nate and Alex, are not amazing at being consistent with marketing. So it would be much more effective if we found someone else who was to do it. And then on top of that, you know, Eugene has these other ventures that also require social media presence. Exactly. And he's not the person to do it. Like, definitely not. So the first piece is the furthest back one. Just going to give some background. And it's written February this year by Amy Brown for Fast Company. Amy Brown is actually quite a well-known social media manager, even if you don't know her by name, because she worked at Wendy's from 2012 to 2017. And she is the person behind the Wendy's Twitter account. Which, which is became, quite good. Yes. Which became quite honestly like very well known as like an example of great brand social media presence right yeah. and she's like one of the pine pioneers like definitely that. a case for personifying a brand even though wendy's is technically a person it's like yeah i know exactly like she was one of the first to do that and do it really well and in a way that wasn't risky like you know not going to get the brand canceled and actually interacted with customers in this like genuine way and after leaving Wendy's, she worked for a couple of other in-house teams. And her most recent social media gig was for a political campaign for Tom Steyer's presidential run. Now, who's that random? I don't know. I but think it's one it's, of those It's relevant to okay. what I'm going to say okay. later on because of that like political experience, right? So the essay she published was actually in response to the early January mob storming the Capitol. Yes. And it was, was kind of like her response to that. Because she was writing about not being surprised because of her experience as a social media manager, seeing how platforms incubate extreme ideas and then are places where extremists organize and organize like the mob storming on the Capitol. And she also talked about how Facebook and Twitter don't properly equip social media managers to um, defend themselves and their brands. And to respond to threats and comments. Oh, that's actually a really good point. I mean, it makes total sense, but I never think about the backlash of who's... Oh, I do kind of think on the receiving end, but I I never thought that there should be a next step of providing them with tools. Yeah. Yeah, like on the back end, essentially. Like the non-customer... Like not the way we see Facebook and Twitter, but the way brands run it, they really should get a suite of different tools, especially if you're doing things like a political campaign where she was, and I'm sure every politician actually, receives death threats that could be legitimate. You, you don't really know, right? Like there are threats about sending people things in the mail and planting bombs and things like that. And yeah, it's like serious stuff. She was writing how her tools are basically just the same as any other Facebook user. And that doesn't make sense. She also goes on to Describe the situation she sees where brands put millions of dollars into Facebook and Twitter advertising and are also like sales tools for these social media platforms. But social media platforms don't really give anything back to brands. 
They give like, them you an audience, which is like very fleeting. Yeah. Like, they don't give anything extra. Like, they don't recognize the fact that actually these brands keep bringing in people to their platforms, mm-hmm. you know, and they're not invested in helping brands want to stay on their platforms. It's just that brands feel like they have to be. Yeah. Not so much that they like enjoy the experience of it. So I didn't pick this topic, like I said at the beginning, I didn't pick this topic to really focus on bad social media platforms because like we talk about that a lot and I don't know how much more we could say. But I did want to talk about the role of the person who has to do that job because we know people who a good portion of their job is managing social media presence. And like you said, you know, we're we're looking for people as well who do that. And Amy Brown writes in, or she she also did this interview that I read, and how when she started working for Wendy's, the landscape was more emerging and there was more opportunity for cool creative stuff to do. But now brands kind of just like oh, it's copy expected. The same. Yeah, they copy the same tone of voice. This idea of like yeah, like if someone else achieves a level of success, you then take that and run with it. You see it all the time. Yeah. So in reality, it's like the real challenge, I guess the the long-term success is about understanding where things are going and how to understand where in the cycle you are. Because there might be a point in time where we go back to, great example actually is there was a point in time where we desired uh, our brands to have strong political stances and maybe that will come to an end. And maybe people don't want to have to you know, do all their homework and their due diligence on a brand's political leanings. They just want to buy a product, potentially. Sure. I mean, potentially, but it is right now, or I think we can say over the last couple of years, it's been a lot of looking what's out there and then copying it or adapting it to your brand. And that seems to be like the expectation of companies, of social media managers. So I understand how a job that might have started out fun becomes very not fun because there's not actually room for creativity it's quite hard when you are within the four walls of a brand because a brand can't break character otherwise it ceases to become a impactful or powerful brand but the character itself could be established more distinctively but both amy brown and this other piece that i read by ed zitron says that social media managers are often very beholden to a lot of other people in the company's views which I think is uniquely actually a problem for social media people yeah. because everybody thinks they can do it and also thinks that they can like do it better yeah. than the person who is currently running it. Yeah. I think that the understanding where a brand sits, especially if you're not the brand founder, is actually quite difficult. It's actually a skill that you can monetize. I mean, yeah. That's kind of what we do. It's like we go into, with Adam Studios, our value is going in and understanding before even talking to a brand where they sit in this hierarchy where we think they should go. And then that becomes the underlying service we offer. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I I find that actually really fascinating because brand building is something that is actually really hard to commoditize because a brand's position within the overall playing field can always change and shift. Mm -hmm. Right. Like at one point, Tesla was the sort of like, innovative cool guy on the street for electric vehicles but they won't hold that title forever no right and i mean it's the same thing with social media like at one point facebook was a new 
sort of shiny thing relative to my space and look where it is now. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I think, you know, on that subject of people identifying where a brand sits and the tone that a brand should be speaking in, that's it's a challenge as well because the person managing it might come up with a great strategy. This is the tone of voice. This is the personality, the characteristic, and they set out doing that. But it's so easy for other people to derail it and to chip away at it. And I think it's harder to defend Yeah, sometimes because it's like a more, it's an abstract thing and it takes time to build up. Yeah. It's not just like one caption for one post. It's like consistently maintaining that style and that identity yeah. across everything that you do. Yeah. And then it all it takes is like one other person, like the boss, the founder of the brand to be like, oh, I really want you to post about my friend's company. Yeah. And then you have to be like, well, that's not, well, you have to defend like, how is that not in line with what we do? So let me ask you this question. How has the tone and voice of Macon changed ever since you've been involved? Day one of Macon when you first got on board sure. to now? A lot more chill, definitely. Like when we started, it was like writing essays for social media. Yeah. Like that same process that we take to our long form articles applied to our social media presence. Yep. I mean, we can only learn from our experiences. So there's no point in saying like we shouldn't have done that. But it evolved to be a lot more casual. And I know manageable that you always, yeah, manageable. And you've always wanted to be more tongue-in-cheek or spontaneous if possible like making it up is more of a reflection of making as a brand than i think our visual identity suggests ah yeah that's a good point i think i think that's a good point and i i, I think that looking back that i think that era might be over though the era of that sort of monocle serial mag sure kinfolk i think that was an era we emerged out of yeah. Or we're inspired by anyways. Or we're part of. Yeah. Just like sort of pixel perfect. Yeah. Design. Yeah. Do I look back and have any regrets? I think it might have actually slowed down progress. I don't think I don't think about that. I don't think about like, oh, slow down progress. But I do think about how when you establish an image, it's actually really hard to shake people's idea of you as a brand. Because Depends. we spent a long time being very serious about what we do. And like you said, pixel perfect visuals, perfect grammar. You know, well, I mean, you should have perfect grammar. You get my idea. Yeah. That there's like no room for mistakes. And I think that has left like a lasting impression. On yeah, people. I guess it does. And that's what I get bummed out about. If there's anything where I feel like kind of wish had changed quicker is because like I don't want people to get stuck in picturing making one way yeah. when we ourselves think of it differently now. Yeah. Yeah. Because even if you look at like upcoming designs that we've released, they do feel a lot more casual. Yeah. Approachable is the word you've used before. Yeah. 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 I like that word. There's this other piece that's a lot heavier than what I've talked about so far. And it's heavy because it's in relation to something that occurred after Derek Chauvin's conviction. Mm -hmm. So Derek Chauvin is the police who murdered George Floyd. And you might have seen this. A lot of different brands were making statements 
after the conviction to, you know, be in solidarity with the family, things along that line. And one of the brands that said something was the Raiders team, um, the Raiders team on the National Football League for non-state space people. And what they posted was just this graphic that said, I can breathe. And a lot of people thought that was inappropriate and then really, you know, gave it to the social media account in terms of like comments and I'm DMs familiar with this story and things like that. Don't know if you saw this, but the social media manager released an anonymous statement. So we don't know the first name, last name of this social media manager, but it was republished with permission by this other author. I mean, I, I do feel for this person because it sounds like plot they twist. Do you know who have... actually pushed that through? The owner. Yeah. Yeah, I know. That's so like there's yeah. you can't fire. Oh, the sorry, owner. I should have given that context yeah, 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 yeah. beforehand. Like this, this was written by the person who was hired by the Raiders yeah. to do their social media. This is not the owner. This is like an employee. And I'm just going to read an excerpt. Being a social media manager this year almost killed me because of moments like this. Being blamed for things that went out that I had no control over. I'm going to skip the details of this incident. And then he says, and for the next week, we were absolutely eviscerated, just as I said we I would be. I love that word, eviscerated. And I was the one who had to deal with it. I cried for days. I couldn't do my job. I had panic attacks. I was told by followers I should be ashamed. I should be fired. It was the moment I knew I needed to leave my job because my voice and beliefs were stripped from me. And everyone who knew I ran that account thought that my beliefs were something they weren't. And not one person ever asked if I was okay. I left my job because of the lack of understanding of what it is like to be in this position and on social media all day, every day by people within and outside of my organization. And he goes on, it's longer than that. But it, so, I, I feel for him because I think that his words were so true. It's like, like there's there's examples of things that we've done at Adam Studios and we were a component of a brand, but it doesn't mean we do every single part of the brand. So yeah. if something shitty comes through, like, oh, did you do that? Did you do the website? No, no, we didn't do the website. But like we did do the other parts that you do like. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so, exactly. It's really hard. And I think it's hard for especially social media manager, as this person says, is not like a super well understood position. And it really is unfortunate for him, you know, I'm assuming this work environment where he gets overridden yeah, her, all yeah. the time, you know? Yeah. So people will be, it doesn't sound like he has great friends, to be honest, because it sounds like people are making assumptions about what he personally represents based off of like his job. And that's yeah. just really unfortunate. But I can see how that happens. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. I didn't know he had released a statement. I don't think it was very widely circulated which sucks because it's actually quite important yeah like there's actually humanity behind that and then the author of this newsletter who spoke with the manager and published this with his permission you know he expands on this and says the same thing as you about the the owner of the team which is that the the owner gets away without having to look at any of the hate or the responses and the person who has to deal with all of that and interact with like Raiders fans is the manager. And yet it wasn't even the manager who like decided to post it. And so, he even said not to post it. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's like such a no-win situation for him because you did, it wasn't your choice. And now you have to deal with the fallout. Yes. And you have to do that repeatedly. I, I genuinely, I don't, 
<laughs> it was such a hard job. Yeah. Like in positions like this, I'm sure like if you work for like, you know, a four person brand, it's a different situation. Yeah. yeah. Bringing it back to Amy Brown, she does ask this like really big question, which I think is like the big driving question for people who do this job is, this is how she puts it, is continuing to work in social media an ethical choice? Are we tacitly endorsing the inaction of social media companies? What does that mean exactly? Basically, she's saying even if you work for a brand that you're excited by and genuinely support, you are still giving a lot of money and driving people's attention to Facebook and Twitter and other social media platforms, which from her perspective are unethical, Mm -hmm. are unethical companies and not invested in anyone's well-being other than their bottom line her like that's her that's been her whole career and she's reached this point where she thinks like i need to stop doing social media management because it's well one it's personally taxing but also it feels really at odds with her moral compass yeah it's such a like a important job to be honest, in the grand scheme of things, because social media is such an important business function, yet you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Like, either choose to not work and have no job or come to terms with the type of situation you're, you're thrust into. You can't really, like, the yeah. box is so enclosed, right? To answer her question, this isn't a directly, like, resolves an issue with the platforms, but... One problem I think people who work in social media have is that they're often the only person at the company responsible for it. And so a lot falls on their shoulders for like posting and responding to comments and just being in it every day. So they don't get a lot of like, they don't get a lot of actual work support and then also not like mental and emotional support for like what they're facing. Yeah, I had a friend who actually had to endure some stuff because she was uh, doing some social media management for uh, some F&B brands uh, during times of protest. Like some, obviously there's there's political affiliation with different restaurant groups and brands and like she just had to put up with yeah. you know, comments. Yeah. But actually she was pretty indifferent about it. I mean, that's good. I think it's a little bit more it's a little bit different because when you're maybe an agency handling it rather than in-house, it's not a direct attack on you. Mm. You're just the sort of middle layer. I think you might have more remove. Exactly. In that like situation, it, yeah. It's like, imagine if someone was like, oh, the Raiders are one of my clients alongside a, you know, yeah. a donut company and so on. And I think else. also, if your friend is in a situation where they're contracted by the company, they might be, pro- they have a layer of protection in terms of like, the internal workforce sentiment. Yeah. Whereas like if you're working with a team and within the team, you're known as a social media person yeah. and you guys are like taking a lot of hits, then I think you might be getting a lot of criticism as well. Yeah. In terms you, of like, are you doing your job properly? Yeah. There might be some ethical things like, oh, you're working for a company that has this political stance. But I mean, that's the only other thing. If you can live with it, then you can live with it. Right. I'm just more concerned. Not so much. I mean, Yes, like Amy Brown pulls up this like ethical question regarding like Facebook and Twitter. But I think what I've not that I didn't know this, but 
just the reading this morning has made me think about like businesses not having totally thought through the type of support social media workers need. Yeah. And maybe that's just because like social media like blew up and keeps changing. Even people that are in charge of uh, moderating stuff like that's another can of worms too. Yeah. How do you, you know how I'm not saying that we need to go back old school, but I do think there is value in like being trained specifically for certain types of jobs and situations. Like if you, if you're an audio producer, someone training you to mix audio is really important in the same way. I think like if you're having to face a lot of like negative, even threats from strangers on social media, you should probably be trained on how to respond to that. Not just like typing responses, but how are you like personally, yeah, emotionally responding to that? So, yeah. and I imagine there are, like I said, we know people, and there's probably listening people listening to this right now who have to manage their own brands or other people's brands, social media. So I just wonder, like, how everyone copes with it. Like, there's probably been so many, you know, DIY ways of coping with their own challenges. Yeah. Should we move on? Let's do it. My topic this week is what it was like growing up on a commune. So before you look at it face value, there's actually a lot of interesting undertones to this piece. Which I don't is know why, why I you said it. that, like I was going to be prejudiced no, about No, 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 but I think communes themselves carry a certain stigma. Like you have an image in your head of what a commune entails. Did you watch the movie Once no. Upon... Anyways, what movie? I'm rolling my eyes. One, Once Upon a Time? In Hollywood? No. With Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio. What's the movie with the dinosaurs? Jurassic Park. No, the the cartoon one. Toy Story? No. What are we talking about? The, the, what are we talking about? A cartoon movie with dinosaurs. Yes, from back in the day, like the 80s. Oh, Land Before Time. Yes. Sorry. Anyways. All right. Well. Totally, totally unrelated. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a fictionalized version of accounts that involve a cult, actually, but that's the, what I mean. You even but, brought it up, so there's like some sort of underlying stigma. Positions itself as a commune. Yes, it's actually a cult in that movie. Okay, okay. but that's I know that's not the subject today. Yes. All right, life on a commune. All right, so Catherine Desert Morton's piece outlines not just the experience of growing up in a commune, but rather what is the broader social fabric that comes from a commune experience. Mm-hmm. So this is actually the part I found most interesting, and there's a lot of interesting said interesting so many times there was a lot of fascinating tidbits there that i felt were all very interconnected with the current challenges that modern society has to go through so the story starts off with Catherine's desire as a kid to buy a pair of umbro shorts i actually picture these shorts because they're like the quintessential like 90s umbro short where yeah. it's like a diamond yeah satiny i'm picture it yeah too. that's crazy right it is kind of crazy especially for someone that doesn't play soccer it's just like it's so it was an omnipresent. item yeah. Yeah. Uh, she never got the shorts, but for reasons that are a little bit different than what you might imagine. Because sometimes a parent might not buy their kids shorts because of, oh, like I don't have the money or, or whatnot. But in Catherine's experience, she says that it wasn't a question of money or ideological objection. My parents didn't buy me the shorts because they didn't know 
where they were sold and weren't interested in finding out. They were not adept consumers. Buying new things was of so little interest to my parents, my dad especially, that most consumer behaviors were foreign to them. Requiring my dad to navigate a shopping mall would have been like asking him to speak a language he didn't know. Mm. And that's such a massive contrast to today because, great example, yesterday I was going to buy a toy for the dog we dog sit. Okay. Hutch, right? Yeah. And my initial thought wasn't just to go find like a random toy store. It was like best pull toy totally. or something. Right. And yeah. like we almost pride ourselves. And I, this is especially me. Like my friend the other day was going to buy some Nike soccer balls, footballs. I was like, dude, don't buy it from Nike.com. I'll find you a better deal. And like that was a point I of know, pride for me. I know. That really spoke to me too yeah. in reading this article where she says that people nowadays take pride in being good consumers yes. i have that same experience you know the whole couple of months where stanley was researching television TVs, yeah, yeah. tvs which i mean he enjoyed just well, i don't know what that says to just like enjoy that process of yeah. research and ultimately it's crazy purchase an item yeah so actually the commune that she grew up on uh which was vermont's total loss farm which is a pretty sick name to be honest began in the late 60s and was started by her father it was and I quote, home to activists, artists, and writers who were involved in many of the political movements of the late 60s and early 70s. It produced theater, books, newspapers, gardens, and many, many parties. So despite her dad's extreme competence in the natural world, like construction, politics, and power dynamics, which I think is really interesting in a commune, right? Because you're trying to keep this tightly wound community together, but also manage how you get stuff done. Yeah. Um. But obviously being a great consumer wasn't a necessarily desirable skill or one you even thought about you need Just to have. Just one he didn't practice. Yeah. So Catherine now has her own grade five son and he's like many kids today, like a supreme consumer, like knows brands, yeah. knows devices, all that other stuff. So it's all like second nature. And I think that's probably something that we will experience. Like if you ever have kids, you'll probably look back on, you always are reflective on how your childhood was right and how things were different yeah yeah totally right. and I, I think of, you know it's funny because when i was in fifth grade i didn't think about consumerism and capitalism the way i do now like i didn't have like anxieties about buying stuff but i definitely wanted things yeah and the, but there were far fewer things there were sneakers and clothes i think and now i think it's I mean, maybe a few electronics here and there. There but was a couple of electronics, you know, Tamagotchi, CD players. Game Boy. Yeah. But it's just so different now. But anyways. I to, mean, there's a lot more branding going on yeah, now. Yeah. It's not just about the item, but like what brand are you yeah, purchasing? Yeah. yeah. One, one interesting story that she shared was when her father passed away, there was a particularly moving moment when the commune community was at the cemetery and they elected to use their hands to bury the handmade casket and this was obviously not the norm because there's a there's like heavy machinery off yeah. to the side that's just gonna Move bury the dirt, yeah. yeah yeah and what she said was how did my parents demonstrate what they believed in with nothing less than the very hours of their days they were constantly engaged in group endeavors whether political activism or putting in a garden or cooking dinner for a handful of dirty-faced children the majority of whom were not their own daily life didn't push them to their energetic limit the way it seems to for me and my peers so this is the interesting pivot of the conversation because it starts to talk about time and how time is 
in many ways the most the most valuable resource, right? Yeah. And for her parents, that was how they showed they cared and how they essentially provided some sort of value to people around. It wasn't through their ability to consume. So this next paragraph is one of my favorite ones from the piece, and it explains how late stage capitalism has really changed our sense and experience with time and in turn, how we treat others. Neoliberal family life has turned the very idea of accountability to others into a dreadful burden. We associate having to check in or do favors for others as a kind of systems failure. If you're looking to optimize your schedule for maximum efficiency, having to pause and account for someone else's pace and needs, someone who isn't even related to you, throws a spanner in the works. At a certain point, though, we owe it to ourselves to ask what rewards we're reaping from having optimized our nuclear families. For what? So that to me is like such a powerful statement because it's true. It's like we've been indoctrinated to think that we need to achieve as much as possible because that's our identity, work is our identity, and that time is so valuable. Like our personal time is so valuable that we don't have time for other people and that's also okay because you're on your singular pursuit of your own goals. Yeah, and the last thing is just like, it's so impactful because it's true in that our our value in the world is determined by not necessarily how happy we are in a collective, but rather our individual standing relative to others. I was just going to say, I definitely see as well in myself and Stanley how when we're not working, we want to just have our own time to ourselves and that there is a part of us that thinks of social engagements as taking away from our own personal time instead of being, as she describes on a commune, being part of a collective that takes care of one another. So if you needed help, there are people readily available to help you out, right? And we structure social engagements so much as like, like a leisure activity. It's like, oh, either I can stay home and like watch a movie by myself or the leisure activity is like going out and having dinner with Eugene. Yeah. As opposed to us just spending time together is part of being part of this larger community of people and not community in the sense of like a brand talking to people, but like there's more of us doing life together than just like me and my legal partner. Yeah. So this next thought actually ties it back to yours i think because it starts to revolve around the idea of like community Mm. which commune community there's like if you look at the very presence and need for social media manager what is it often there for like to develop a community right and why is community so important it's because based off of what's been said earlier one's ability to act and give up time without anything in return actually is the most important thing. And if brands are able to activate this core community that is willing to give up their time in servitude of the brand, they basically win, right? Sure, yeah. But I would argue That's what they aim to I do. would argue the even better stage of winning is getting people to give up their time to each other, but they've been brought together because of the brand or the entity. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's actually like. So that it's not just like this, like bi directional, but it's whatever the other word is multi directional. Multi directional, I think. Yeah. So, but you understand 
what I mean when I when I'm saying that, like now I kind of understand. Well, I've always understood that a strong community was good business, but the layer below it is that the reason why it's good business is because getting someone to carve out a part of their busy schedule for your brand for free that is the most valuable thing yeah but i kind of hate that we were talking about communes in this like super wholesome way and now we're talking about how businesses can monetize that concept yeah yeah i think that they're basically trying to leverage the most powerful elements of a commune sure yeah environment i agree i'm just a little bit not excited that we do that like so from for me most recently i've ever since i moved last year like i live in like a quasi commune of sorts because i have no i i'm smiling but only because i know what you're about to yeah because like so within let's say a 10 minute radius i have you know no less than three or four groups of friends that are really tight like people that you would go on a, a 10 hour road trip with like the the those types of people, right? Yeah, yeah, and I know. It's been interesting because there's now kids entering this, so it's multi-generational. And I can only imagine how more, how much more fascinating their lives will be because they're in some ways being co-parented, yeah. but not in a very direct, defined way. So it's like, I am now like probably one level higher than like an uncle to like, a 10 year old and a 13 year old for example yeah where like if they need me to do something it's like oh whatever like i'll take i'll whatever you need me to help you with dinner or whatever it's like it's very straightforward not to say an uncle wouldn't do that but i no, think I just by mean. virtue of seeing it's them proximity. so frequent yeah. right and i keep thinking like man it's actually matt i would love if i was a parent to have that experience because you have you know you have let's say entrepreneurs you have chefs you have all these different people of different walks of life that you can rely and trust on because they would do the same for you. And what you're doing is you're providing with so much more experience in terms of how to see the world that is incredibly impactful. Mm-hmm. And it changes from, especially, I'm sure this is probably, well, it's weird because there's a bit of contradiction because in Asia, we're deemed to be more collectivist, more community focused. Yeah, But if you live on the same floor as someone, more often than not, you don't even develop any relationship with someone that lives on the same floor as you. Well, that's because people in Asia, the collectivism comes from the family. Yes, that's what I'm saying. But on the flip like, side. As in your actual blood relatives, yeah. family. But then on North America, it's like, how often will you strike up a conversation waiting in line at, at the yeah. coffee shop yeah. where you would really not do that? Like that's, it's like kind of flipped in that sense. It's not flipped so much as like, I wouldn't, I don't know, I wouldn't use the word flipped. Like, I think there is a interest in collectivism, both in Western cultures and Eastern cultures. It's just that Asian cultures tend to be oriented towards blood relatives. And that's where the collective comes from versus maybe in the States, it's more proximity based. Yeah. Whoever is living around you, you know, and that's also related to like geography and things like that. So the the sort of narrative that I want to encapsulate on this is like, so time is obviously of the utmost importance. Late stage capitalism forces us to maximize our time. And in doing so, you realize that the most valuable thing is like you giving your time. Yeah. 
right? And you giving your time for things that provide non-material benefit for the sake of community is like such an Im- impactful thing. Yeah. You know, and that's one thing I, I've seen Nicole do a lot. Like she'll, she'll spend five hours making cookies or baking a cake. And I'm like, it's a lot of work for, you know, a bunch of other people. But then at the same yeah. time, like, oh man, it's like, it's actually probably a pretty good feeling for her when everyone's like, oh, these are the best cookies or these are amazing or thanks for the cookies. Yeah. My takeaway is from this piece in particular is about a mentality because we're not about to go live on communes, right? I mean, you live in a quasi-commune. I would totally do it. I think that you can, there's a way you can de- define or design a modern one, but it obviously takes a lot of infrastructure and resources. Yeah. So most people probably not doing that in terms yeah. of like actually physically, geographically relocating themselves. But I think you can change your mentality towards your existing friendships. Yeah. You don't even have to tell your friends like, hey, let's be a commune, but it's just. How you use your time. Yeah. The closest thing I can think of is when you live in like dorm rooms and res. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. College students actually have that kind of going on. Maybe they're not necessarily looking out for each other, but they do because Except they're they all new no to the resources. experience. That's the yeah. difference. Yeah. Anyways, that's all for me. That's a good place to wrap things up for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories, focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture. You can visit us at Macon.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash Macon. Patreon members get access to the Macon Discord, where we talk about episodes of Making It Up and everything else going on in global creative culture. Become a member and join us in those conversations. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.